Well, today we begin a new sermon series that will take us through the end of January, so about six or seven weeks or so, including our Christmas Eve services uh, on Saturday. We're calling this series Arise, Shine, God's Light is Dawning. As we explained in a recent blog post on the church website, that theme of light in the Bible is almost everywhere. It's almost as inescapable in the Bible as light is in our everyday lives. It's everywhere. Our bedroom at home has uh, those little block glass windows that you really can't see much through. People can't see in, but, but light travels through them quite well, for better or worse. And we have these block windows in our bedroom without any, without any drapes hanging over them which wouldn't be a problem except there's currently some construction going on across the road about 100 yards behind our bedroom. I don't know what's going in there. It must be something pretty important because they're occasionally working through the night with floodlights pointed at our house and refracting through these block windows. So the other night I was laying there, I couldn't sleep, tossing and turning, decided to get up. And I walked down the stairs, and halfway down our stairs, we have a, a, a big window up high again with no drapes. And right there, like it was framed, was a full moon. So that, that place was lit. And I, I turned the corner to get downstairs, and, and I saw we had left the Christmas tree lights on. And, uh, and I actually said out loud, light is everywhere. And then I remembered this message and thought, well, if I come up with nothing else for the introduction, there's my introduction, I guess. <laughs> so it's a mediocre introduction at best, but uh, there it is. Um, I, I sat there that, that middle of the night on the couch just for a little bit, and I imagined a world of complete and utter darkness. We want, we, we want darkness at times, but imagine, imagine a world of complete and utter darkness. Now, I know it's impossible. I know without the sun, there's no warmth. Without the sun, there's no photosynthesis. Then there's no food. We can't live without any light, I realize. But, but I'm not talking about just being blind, but a world with complete darkness. My brain could actually work up enough imagination that night to imagine a world without any light. And it was rather terrifying for me. But why? Is it just because light is needed? Is it just because it's this physical thing that we know we need to have? Or is it something more? Well, over the next several weeks, we'll be studying this idea of light according to the Bible. The Bible starts off talking about light as a physical thing, light in creation. But then the themes of light and darkness become these ever-growing metaphors throughout the Bible. They're metaphors for God's ways, for spiritual things, for the coming of Jesus, for a new heaven and a new earth. The contrast between darkness and light is, is frequently used for the difference between righteousness and sin, or good and evil, or God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. 600 years or more before the coming of Jesus, 
the prophet Isaiah foretold of a great coming light. Isaiah 60, this is where we get that line, arise, shine. Isaiah describes it in past tense, even though it was still future to come. He says, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and the nations will come to your light. This is why when Jesus began his teaching ministry in Matthew 4, Matthew could conclude that this little verse in Isaiah 42 is happening. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. On them a light has dawned. This is why it's so massively important to know that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He's that light, that promised light, the capital L light. And that light will grow And one day in a consummate state, a new heaven and a new earth, God's light and all that it entails will then make useless the sun and all other stars. We read in Revelation 22, heaven will be a place with no night, no sun, no lamps, for the Lord their God will be their light. It's a massive theme. So that's a bit of an overview of where we're going in this series on light. You should know if you're visiting with us that usually we're working our way through books of the Bible. God gave us books of the Bible and we want to take that seriously. And so come February, uh, we'll, Lord willing, begin a a longish series in the book of Acts in the New Testament. But because the Bible is a, a big book with 66 books within it, it can at times be useful to take up a theme and to see how that theme plays out across the landscape of the Bible. It's like the Bible is a giant, intricate tapestry. And you can take certain threads and notice them and you pull on them and then you see them move throughout the tapestry. It's connected in these different eras and in these different places. A theme like God's light is a important thread in the tapestry of God's plan. And so we'll pull on that thread over the next several weeks in different ways and see it move in different places in the Bible. And what's even more, if we can sort of enlarge the analogy here, these threads in God's plan, they actually aren't stagnant like a thread would be in a tapestry. They they themselves, as they move along, they grow, they swell, they illuminate, they glow. So today we're going to look at three passages, starting with the very first in the Bible in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1... At creation, God said, let there be light, and there was light. A second passage we'll look at is in John 1, where their creation language is used to show that Jesus is that creator, and he is the light coming into the world, and he's coming into a dark world. 
And then we'll look at 2 Corinthians 4, a few verses there, where again, Genesis 1 language is used, let there be light, as it talks about how God brings us to faith in Jesus. Or we could think about the same passages as three different beginnings in the Bible. There's the beginning, Genesis 1, at creation, but then there's a new beginning that John 1 talks about when Christ came to earth, like at Christmas time. But we could also think in terms of 2 Corinthians 4 as our new beginning, when we first come to understand what Christ's coming and living and dying and being raised was all about. So turn to Genesis 1, first of all. Here's the beginning. We'll talk about light in creation from the first five verses of Genesis. Here's how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. In the beginning, before there ever was anything else, in the beginning, there was God. God has no beginning. He's eternal. This world is not eternal, no matter how old you think it is. It's not eternal. God initiated it. He sovereignly, with infinite power, acted upon nothing in order to make something. And not just something, everything. Heavens and earth, the unseen and the seen, all that is. The timeless, eternal God, the, the everywhere God created time and space. And he came upon it. And he began it. And it's a place for us. He's put us in it. And he's, he's given such superfluous glory throughout it, hasn't he? Here we are on this little planet. I won't go into whether there are aliens or not. Don't get distracted by that. But we're on this one little planet here in, in this little galaxy with all these other galaxies out there. It's superfluous glory. This is how big our God is. He's not contained to it or, or stuck in it. He, he transcends it. And yet it's his. He, he made it. At first, this world wasn't much to look at. I know that's a bit of a head scratcher. But that's what verse 2 of Genesis 1 seems to say. Before there was day 1. Day 1 happens verses 3 through 5. If you look carefully in your Bible. And in my opinion, anyway, there was a creative act that happened before day one. If verse three begins day one, then there's something 
called earth in verse 2. So it would seem like verse 1, there, God created. That's a summary statement of all that he created, but it's also a creative act. He created something, or else where did that thing called earth come from in verse 2? Verse 2 describes it. Again, it's not much to look at. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Without form and void. We don't know exactly what that means or what that entails. The words, the Hebrew words, seem to have the idea of chaos involved in them. Don't think evil chaos. God didn't create evil. But perhaps ambiguity, emptiness, formlessness. I imagine a potter who plops down his clay and maybe puts ingredients in it there on the wheel before he begins to shape it. And later we'll carve in it. And later we'll paint it. And later we'll fill it. God will do more than this. But at first, verse 2, there's a plop. I don't know what else to say. It wasn't someone else's plop, by the way. It wasn't someone else's clump that God came across and, and decided to pick up and shape. This was God's clump. Some of the ancients had their own creation stories, knockoff stories, you could say, that were similar to Genesis but different as well. Some of these ancient myths said that their God was part of creation and then slid out from the sluge of whatever was there before and then he got domain of it. Some say that uh, he fought off a mythical creature to, to, to gain the right to, to be the God of creation or something like that. These myths, Mesopotamian creation stories, have similarities to Genesis, but, but Genesis is uniquely monotheistic. One God, an eternal God, not a part of his creation or in competition with it or any part of it, not held back by any of it or frustrated with it. And yet our God, the all-powerful God, chooses to create this world progressively. I don't know why. He didn't need to. We know that. He could have spoke all of it at once. And yet he layers it, perhaps for the watching, angelic crowd, perhaps for Moses to write it down as he did, and for us to read as we do today. He works progressively. And so with this earth without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep, then we read the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God draws near to the, to the clump, to the mass, whatever it is, and he begins to do something. This word hovering is a special word. It's what mother birds would do over their chicks. It's brooding. It's vibrating. It's one way to translate this word. It's shaking. Some have wondered whether this is when energy came into creation. If before it was without form and void and it was darkness, perhaps no gravity, and then the Spirit of God begins to shake. Perhaps. 
but we should also pause here to make a few mental notes about how we approach Genesis creation account. It's helped me over the years to think of this account as a mixture of different kinds of literature. It's history, it is. It is theology, indeed it is. It's poetry. You have needlessly rhyming things in the Hebrew. There's no doubt that it's poetry in part. And it's doxology. It means it's for worship. On the one hand, it's accurate. It's not figurative or symbolic. But it is purposefully majestic. It is preachy. It doesn't intend to answer all of our questions about science and how things work. That doesn't mean that it's anti-science, it just means that it's actually bigger than science. I know that's surprising to some of you who work at Sandia Labs, but the Genesis account is far bigger than science. It's unashamedly preachy. It's perfectly at ease with mystery and wonder. And so I think as Christians, first and foremost, we're to sit under its awe and majesty and be caught up in it. We can wonder whether the spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep was the first sign of energy in this creation, perhaps. We might wonder how light can exist before there's the creation of the sun or other stars. We can wonder or we can marvel. Marvel that it's so. You see that? Verse 3, God said, let there be light and there was light and the light was good. It's not until verse 14 on the fourth day that God creates the sun and the other stars. So how is there light without sun? I don't know. I don't know. God can do that. I have no problem with that. I don't need a scientific explanation for it. God said, light, be there, and instantly light was there. Light was his first creative act after the spirits brooding over the deep, dark waters. And he merely spoke it into existence. There's nothing like that that you and I say that can affect something instantaneously. There's, you know, we tell our kids to obey. We can threaten them if they won't obey. They'll be disciplined. We can reward them and incentivize them to obey. But just simply saying the command or or giving the prohibition does not enact obedience. It doesn't make it so. But it is so with God. Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He creates. He creates light. So here's the beginning of the story of light in this world. And from here, it just grows and grows. Let's gather up our findings from Genesis 1 before we move on to another passage, though. 
From Genesis 1, we learn that God is eternal. He's the only creator. He's separate from his creation. And yet he is the hands-on maker of all creation. It's his creation. He created all things. It shows his power and his glory and his majesty that he created it out of nothing. He created light. And light is good. It's basic to human living and flourishing and enjoyment. Without it is only darkness. There'd be no life whatsoever apart from his light. God is good, and so he makes what is good, and he calls the light good. Our God draws near to a dark creation still today. In some ways, this is reverberating still today. He steps into the chaos to bring order. He takes what is formless and he gives it shape and meaning and beauty. The creation of physical light in this world was just the beginning of it. And it keeps reverberating today. Now secondly, let's consider a new beginning. Light in the incarnation. The incarnation, that's a theological word. But you already know what it means if you know about carne, meat, flesh. That's the incarnation. It's referring to the indwelling or the infleshing of God. It's about Christmas. It's about Jesus' birth where the Son of God, who was God himself, became a man and was born of a woman. Turn with me to John 1. John 1 unpacks the theology of the incarnation for us, and it does so using the language of Genesis. Our texts, John 1 and Genesis 1, hold hands in several different ways. Now, we'll deal with this passage more briefly than our other two this morning because we're going to come back to John 1 in just six days at our Christmas Eve service. So we'll dig into it more there. But today, let's see how this reflects Genesis 1 and builds upon it. In the beginning, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness... And the darkness has not overcome it. You see how John purposely begins with that echo of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. Back then, before creation, there was this word. Jesus is who he's going to make clear this is. The word. The word of creation is Jesus himself. It's not just God's word out there in the air, which is not yet air. <laughs> Jesus always has been. He, is, he was with God from the beginning. In fact, he himself is God. All things were made through him. We find this elsewhere in the Bible, like in Colossians 1. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him, Colossians adds. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
See how this is getting stacked? He's not just the Genesis 1 creator. He's the ongoing sustainer. It wasn't just through him that worlds were made, but it's for him that these worlds were made, for his glory. In him was life, John says. In him was life. We, we live and move and have our being in him. And John tells us life is like the light of men. What does that mean? How is life like light of men? Well, here, of course, light is beginning to be used in that metaphorical way. It's not literal. We don't have light within our bodies. If we cut ourselves, we don't emanate light. But life, what is it? What is life? Well, some people talk about it as kind of a light. We, we sometimes speak about light going out as a euphemism for death. We rage, rage against the dying of the light. But where does that life or light come from? Of course, it comes from the creator, from Christ the creator. He's, he's the creator of physical light, and he's the giver of physical light and, and, and spiritual light. And he is that light. Shining in the darkness. Verse 5, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the way light and darkness always work. Whenever they meet, they don't have a wrestling match to see who will win. When you come into a dark room and you flip that switch, you don't have to wait and see what's going to happen. If darkness remains, then there's a light bulb out. That's the explanation. It's not that darkness beat light that time. Let's see what happens next time. The light always wins, right? The flashlight always chases the dark away, at least in a certain direction, in a limited way. So what's true in creation about light is also true about Jesus, who is the light of this world. Light brings life. So does Jesus. Light overcomes Darkness, so does Jesus. That's why he came. And light makes things visible. Light exposes. On the one hand, that's very good. This is indeed a new beginning. John uses old Genesis language about the beginning and the one who was back there and before all that to talk about a new beginning with his infleshing into this world. And yet he begins to lay out for us a conflict that's going to happen between light and darkness. In verse 10, though he was in the world and though the world was made by him, the world didn't know him. How did it not know him? He's the creator. He's the light. He's the life giver. There he is. He's the light in the flesh, the light of the world. They didn't see it. They didn't want to own up to it. They didn't want to be exposed to it. You see, we've skipped something very important in moving from Genesis 1 to John 1. It's called the fall. 
God created all things good and created man and woman to walk with him in obedience and in light and in communion and fellowship and worship. And they rejected that. They went astray. They chose instead to be their own gods and make their own rules. And from there, they have led a whole race of rebellion against God. So everyone born into this world is born in rebellion against God, going astray from God, wanting to be their own God. You see the effects of it play out from the earliest chapters of the Bible. The first two brothers, one is righteous, the other one hates him for being righteous, so he kills him. You see it in the next chapter as, as the offspring of Adam and Eve scatter, not to worship, not to commune, but to build, to conquer, to make things, to create things for their glory. This is the fall. It's still around today. And it was the problem that Jesus addressed in John 3 when he spoke of himself being a light to the world. He says, light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Like cockroaches that scurry when the light comes on, Jesus shows up on this earth. Yes, as you read the gospel accounts, some do believe. Many are very curious, but also many hate him, flee from him. It's all over the Bible. So let's gather up our gains from the Gospel of John. Jesus is God. He is the creator. Though born of a woman, he's the creator, the sustainer, the light giver, the light who's come into the world. He came into a dark world because he's bringing about a, a new beginning, a new creation. He came to be light and to give us light. And that means exposing things which is what we need, but it's not what we want. We don't like his light because we don't like seeing our guilt. But the good news is that principle that goes back to the first day of creation. Light conquers darkness. It's still true today. Jesus comes to the chaos to bring order. He comes to the formless to give shape. He comes to fill the void. Though we don't like his light, his light conquers the darkness. It's what light does. It always has. How do we get that, though? Well, thirdly, let's talk about our new beginning Let's talk about light in conversion. Conversion, another theological word. Conversion means to turn, to turn to God. It means to turn in response to Christ and the gospel of his cross and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. It means to turn to him and to begin to follow him. That's conversion. We don't by nature want to follow him. So how will we? Well, 2 Corinthians 4 helps us out. Turn there if you would. 
2 Corinthians 4. We'll start with a few verses, verses 4 through 6. What we'll see is that verse 4 explains to us the problem of our natural rejection of Christ and his light. It actually gives us more information than what John told us. But then verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 tells us how God overcomes that unbelief. And once again, the language of Genesis is used here again. So 2 Corinthians 4, look at verse 4. In their case, I'll tell you who that is in just a second here. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now those are some thick sentences and they contain some thick theology and we'll do our best to pick at those bones in just a bit here but let me give you the backstory to why Paul would write this in the first place or for that matter why he wrote this letter we call 2 Corinthians here's the backstory Paul preached uh, in Corinth back in Acts 18 many people got saved they became Christians and they formed a church and Paul was with them for a whole year and a half Then Paul moved on to other things, other ministries, other opportunities for the gospel. Then false teachers came to town. Slick, rich, fancy false teachers. They had a message of optimism and positivity. They had a flashiness about them. And that didn't gel with Paul's style. They didn't like Paul's message. They didn't like Paul's methods. They badmouthed Paul. They tried to turn the Corinthians away from their spiritual father, Paul. And so one of the ways they tried to discredit Paul is to say to the Corinthians, hey, you know how Paul preaches the gospel to people and most of the people don't believe? Why do you think that is? Obviously, there's a flaw in his message. It's the wrong message. He's got the wrong gospel. You got the wrong guy. There's a flaw in the messenger. That's why some don't believe. So Paul is writing 2 Corinthians to defend himself, to defend his ministry, and also to defend the true gospel. Now, verses 1 through 3 of 2 Corinthians 4 will make more sense to you. Let's read that. Therefore, Having this ministry, Paul's ministry, with that gospel, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, unlike these charlatans in your town. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word as they're doing. But by an open statement of the truth, there's Paul's preaching philosophy, an open statement of the truth. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, they can't see it. 
They don't get it. It's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, that's who, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So his primary point is that when the gospel is rightly preached and people reject it, they do so because of their unbelief and because of Satan's power to blind their minds to keep them from seeing the truth. It's of no fault to the messenger, as long as he's got the message right. And it's no indication that the message is faulty when people don't believe. And so Paul says, we don't lose heart when we preach and they don't believe. We don't turn to sneaky, underhanded, gospel-altering methods that appear to have better results. We just keep proclaiming the gospel with simplicity and clarity and with a clear conscience. The gospel. That's a word I'm sure you've heard, but do you know what it means? It means good news. It means information. It means events. It's a declaration of something that happened. It's death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel according to 1 Corinthians 15. Or if we turn to page over in our Bibles from 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us or to bear sin for us so that we might have the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. And hearing that gospel, even if it's put in different words, is absolutely essential to being saved, to being on the path to wholeness and a new creation and getting light and seeing truth. It's absolutely essential. How will they believe unless they hear, Romans 10 says. And yet more than hearing and more than the right information is needed. Isn't that clear from 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4? There'd be no hope for any of us in this room if the only truth to cling to was the incarnation, God in the flesh. Or just having Jesus' teaching, okay, then what? Well, how about the cross, him dying in the place for sins? If that happens and then it stops there, no hope. Let's go further, the resurrection. Let's say the resurrection was for real. Let's say the news of the cross and the resurrection reaches to you. Here's why more is needed. It doesn't penetrate your Satan-blinded dark heart. None of us get it. None of us see it. None of us want it. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. Isaiah 53 predicted that when the Messiah comes, he would have no beauty 
or form or comeliness that we would desire him. It has nothing to do with his physical features. It means there's nothing we're drawn to about this kind of savior and king. 1 Corinthians 1 says that when the gospel's preached, for some it's a, a stumbling block. To hear the Christ crucified, some think this is foolishness. But some see it as the power of God into salvation. There'd be no hope for it to become power for us unless of the truth in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Here's verse 6. For God, <clears throat> who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So get this, the same God who spoke physical light into existence by the word of his mouth back in Genesis 1-3, is the same God who can speak spiritual light into satanically darkened hearts, whereby he overcomes Satan, overcomes the darkness, he removes the blindness, and he puts in gospel light and clarity, and we get Christ. Now, Satan is strong, and he's all about this blinding business. He is against Christ and against his ways and he doesn't want people to get the gospel. His blinding is incredible. Surely if you're a Christian and you've talked to a non-Christian, you've seen the power of Satan's blinding. It's incredible. But Satan is absolutely no match for God. God simply speaks the word and it is so. As Luther taught us to sing, one little word shall fell him. With a word, God can illumine long time, dead, dark, Satan trapped and blinded hearts. He can give light and life and joy and salvation. Of course, Paul puts it in this wordy way to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I'd encourage you maybe later today to write out verse four in a line and then write out verse six in a line and you'll see some amazing parallels. Both have gospel, both have glory, but there's some differences as well. There's the glory of Christ and the glory of God. There's Christ who's the image of God and then it's the glory of God in the face of Christ. One of the things it tells us is that Jesus is God. Yes, the Father and the Son are distinct. We believe in three persons, one God. But Jesus is God because God and Christ are used interchangeably here. We clearly see from these wonderful verses that God illuminates truth, gospel, historical facts, but not bare facts alone there's something of an experience with words like light being spoken by the created creator God into dark hearts whereby they get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's not just information. This is personal. This is relationship. I think that's why the word face is used. It's not telling us to go find some good paintings of Jesus, 
some good icons, uh, some, some stained glass windows with Jesus' face. No, we get to Jesus' face these days by virtue of words that we read in the Bible or words that we hear spoken to us. And there's a kind of seeing that takes place, a, a kind of perception that takes place, either in dark hearts, and then we don't get them right, or in lightened heart, enlightened hearts where we see him aright. And when you see him aright, it's personal. We see his face, not literally, but, but face, faces it faces the whole person. It's the real person. My, my wife says to me, uh, look at me when we're talking. I sometimes look down. Why, why do I do that? I know. This is communication. It's face to face. When we see Jesus' face, it means we see him for who he is. And it's wonderful. It's majestic. It's intimate. It's personal. Has it ever been for you? What do you see when you hear of Jesus Christ and him described? What do you see in your heart when you read of him in the Bible? Have you got the right Jesus? Because there are all kinds of false ones out there. You got the facts? Get the facts. Make sure you got the facts. The facts are not enough. Have the facts become true to you? Real to you? Have they become experiential? Has this ever taken place? What Charles Wesley described in that old hymn, And Can It Be? He said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, but thine eye diffused a quickening ray, light. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is conversion. That is the new beginning that we all need. This is what is needed for every human being, no matter what kind of religious home they came from. Every child, parent, every child growing up, in a gospel-teaching home with gospel-believing parents still needs the miracle of 2 Corinthians 4-6 to happen. They don't have clean hearts, pure hearts, empty hearts, just waiting for you to fill them with joy and knowledge of Jesus and love for him. They have satanically blinded hearts. That's scary. But we know the one who can change that. So we're not worried we pray. That's one thing this passage tells us to do or implies for us. you got to pray. You cannot, no matter how much you talk to your friend, no matter what you say, you in your strength and in your persuasion, with your concern, you cannot get them to believe or to change or to see Jesus. Only God can speak light into dark hearts. So pray, proclaim, proclaim that glorious gospel to them. Don't tamper with God's word. Don't give them a half gospel. Give them an open statement of the truth and a clear conscience. That's what he'll use, right? 
If you haven't yet come to this Christ like this, if you haven't yet seen him, we pray you would. We'd encourage you to pray. Yes, get your questions answered. Yes, read, study, get the right Christ. Yes, but you better pray. It takes a miracle for us to get to believe that Jesus is the light of this world. Christian, isn't he glorious? Isn't Christ glorious to you? Once this gospel light has dawned in our hearts, we're forever changed by it. We're not done with it. We're hungry for more. Yes, from one angle, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, is a momentary thing, right? There's a, a moment when you used to be in darkness, and now you're of the light. You, you may not know when that was in your past. That's fine. But it is a, a momentary thing. Again, that's why we call it conversion. There's the, there's the moment it turns. But this experience of light, of communing with Christ... <coughs> And gazing upon him, of experiencing the knowledge of the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ is something we keep doing, increasingly so. And we'll do to its fullest in a new heaven and a new earth when we will see him face to face and be instantly changed by him. So don't get tired who he is don't get tired of what you know about him don't give up on your bible reading gaze upon him in his beauty in his glory in all that he is and all that he is for you and all that he's done and all that his word shows him to be behold him this christmas in his birth with wonder and awe, behold the mysteries and the majesty of these stories. Behold him in his humility. Behold him in his sacrifice and servantry. Behold him in his mercy, in his compassion, in his care and concern for the lowliest. Behold him in his tender mercies when he cried over his friend Lazarus dying. Behold him in his humanity which he took on for you. Behold him in his wonderful teaching. Behold him in his skill with those serpent-like Pharisees. He always outdid them, it's so wonderful. Behold him in his trust of the Father. Behold him in his righteousness. Behold him in his temptation in the garden. And he was righteous to the end and to the full for you and for me. Behold him in his glorious fellowship with Moses and Elijah upon the mountain when his glory was, was revealed to Peter, Paul, and John. Behold him in all that he's promised for us, and all that he said he would do. Behold him. How much more could we say? 
We could pause right here and take the next 12 hours to meditate on the New Testament. We could pause here and read a, a book on Christology, the theology of Christ. We could pause then after that and pray and commune with him hour upon hour. Do you think we would ever run out of things to say? We, I know, we, we're weak, we're human, we do get bored, we do run out of things to say, but not because of some limit in his glory. Consider the glory of the cross, his suffering for you. Consider the glory of his resurrection. Sundays are resurrection Sundays. Every Sunday we gather together like this to celebrate that we have a living Savior, a risen King who died for us. I'm going to close with a point of application that might seem a little forced, if not a, a jab. But I think it's important. It's good for us. This only happens every six or seven years or so that we have a Christmas day falling on a Sunday. It's next Sunday. Can I encourage you, if you're able, come with us. Come with us. I know we all have traditions around the tree. Eggnog for breakfast. Jammies on the couch. Fireplace. Opening presents. We all love these things. And in many ways, they're beautiful and even point us to Christ when they're used properly. If I'm going to be here next Sunday, I hope you will too. We'll have a jam-packed single service, 10 a.m., I'm going to be here because I'm hungry for glory, not my own, because I want to see him, and I see him in his word, and I see him among his people, and I love to sing his praises with his people, and we can do that in our living rooms, but what a chance we get to show our kids that what we do on Sunday is special. It's sweet. He's the Lord, and there is none besides him. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Oh, how we thank you for Jesus. We pray you'd show your glory in your Son, by your Spirit, more and more. As Isaiah promised, so we still say, arise, shine, Lord, show us your glory. Thank you for the glory that's come in Christ. Help us to celebrate and to sing of his great glory. Not just today, not just next Sunday, but for all eternity. It's in his name we pray. Amen.